Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. So we're in a series right now, and we're talking about who is God. And uh, we are digging deep. So if you're here today and you're new to church and all of this, I mean, this is kind of like we try to think of our different series. This is sort of level two. We're kind of leaning in a little bit. We're kind of pushing in a little bit. And we're talking about who is God. Right now, one of the things that's really popular in our culture, I think, is to really sort of uh, talk a little bit even, you know, does God even exist? And that's kind of sexy to talk about right now in our culture. We all have lots of opinions about that. We have lots of opinions about everything. And here we are in Palm Beach County, a million four hundred plus or minus thousand people. And uh, we, Palm Beach County has the largest conglomeration, the lar- largest groupings uh, by some who study this stuff uh, of, of what is called the nuns, not in, not. N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, which means the largest segment in America of people who have never been to church one time. Isn't that fascinating? And so within this sort of idea is uh, this, this idea in this group of people traditionally would be asking the question, well, I don't even know if God exists. And that's kind of a popular thing, but there's an interesting thing happen, happening right now among those who study this. And they say that when you look at this, this, this larger growing section of not only of our county, but in America, here's an interesting thing. Those who claim Christian faith, watch this, uh, it, it's decreasing among this grouping of people in America. That's going down. Here's what's going up. Spirituality is on the rise. Now that's fascinating. And uh, for those of us who do this kind of thing, and those of us who study trends in culture, one of the things that's really interesting to consider is that almost at, at the outset sort of looks like bad news. Is, is the idea of those who actually claim Christian faith, is it receding uh, uh, particularly in the West? Here's the interesting thing about it. I've yet to have a generous conversation with anybody who is um, deconstructing from faith who is actually deconstructing from an authentic, healthy, holistic version of the Christian faith. What they're deconstructing from are toxic, ill-informed versions of the Christian faith. Now, here's what I would tell you. Shouldn't we all deconstruct from that? And so as a pastor... When I see that kind of trend going down and the rise of spirituality, here's what I see. I see an opportunity. I see an opportunity for people to cast off ill-formed religion and step into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what I see. And this is not new, by the way. Paul the Apostle, when he was writing to the Corinthians in Rome, he talked about a form of religion that denied the authentic power of the risen Christ. And so this is kind of a thing we're talking about right now in this series. We have series across the year where we will talk about the idea of God existing and all of that, but that's not what we're doing in this series. We're not really in this series talking about 
does God exist? What we're talking about in this series is this. If God does exist, what kind of God is he? And, you know, I was kind of thinking about this because um, I think we, this is not a foreign concept to sort of consider this God and maybe what God is like. I know that we do this uh, uh, amongst ourselves as human beings, right? When you meet somebody, you're trying to figure out what kind of person are they actually, you know, when you're meeting them. You ever had a neighbor move in next door and what do you do? I know what you do. You go into, into the room uh, cl- in your house closest to their house Come on, and you look through the windows. Hey, what's coming off that truck? Are they normal people? Are they terrorists? I, I know what you're doing. Uh, when you date someone, you're learning, right? You're looking at all these cues. You're going, you know, why does she, why does she laugh like that? Why does he do that with his hand? We're kind of figuring this out. Right now, we're trying to do that with Mac, our, our grandson. We're, we, we, don't, we don't any longer wonder whether Mac exists. We wonder what kind of person Mac is going to be. Like, look at this. If you look at this picture, look at that. I mean, here's what I want to say. I just want to say, you're welcome. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? I mean, look at that. But, but then there's pictures like this. Every now and again, he just looks at me, and it, he's like, he's trying to figure me out. Then, then this one, what is happening here? What, it, what is that? Confusing. And we can zero in. This is what we do. We're trying to figure all these things out. Well, when it comes to faith... We're trying to figure out who God is. And one of the things I love in this series that we're doing, I'm so proud of our team, we are letting God tell you about God. And in every one of the passages of Scripture we're looking at in this series, we are looking at God's words telling us uh, about some aspect of uh, who he is. If you've been traveling with us uh, so far in this series, we talked about, first of all, uh, this idea of divine presence. And for those of you that want to impress all your friends later, really the the idea behind this is is a big word. It's called revelation. And uh, we we are worshiping a God who chooses to, to, to reveal himself to us. Uh, typically, we think about this, this is so centrally the message of Advent, right? In December, we talk about the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the one and only God coming from the Father. And so we've been looking at divine presence, which is really about revelation. If you were with us last week, we talked about um, divine identity, that God shares his name and that it is actually possible to know this God. On Tuesday mornings uh, when I'm here, I meet with a group of guys. It's open to anyone who wants to come, but uh, a group of guys uh, meet. We meet at Panera over on Southern Boulevard at 630 and we journal through the scriptures, and we read the Bible together, and, and uh, when we come together, we all grab our coffee, you know, and we have about 40 minutes or so of just silence. We're just reading the Bible in silence, 
And then what I've taught over the years is I've taught a method of how people can uh, find and identify with a scripture, make an observation about it, connect it, you know, in its context, apply it to your life and write a prayer about it. And we've been doing this for years. And this uh, past Tuesday, when I met with the guys, I happened upon this verse. Look at this verse right here, John 17, 3. This is Jesus and Jesus, in the, this is what's known as the high priestly prayer. Here he is praying right before he walks across the Kidron Valley down into the Garden of Gethsemane where he is betrayed into the hands of evil men. And it is there that he's carted off to jail. There's a mock trial. He's arrested. He's uh, crucified. And then he's resurrected. So this is a big moment in history. And um, Jesus is praying to God the Father. The disciples are listening in. And there's this moment where, look at his prayer. He says, now this, this is eternal life. What is eternal life, Jesus? That all of us may know you, God in heaven, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so what Jesus is declaring here is that this is, we have a God who has not only chosen to reveal himself, but we have a God who has chosen to tell us who he is. And so that's where we've been so far. And this morning, we're going to take another step out into the water, and we're going to talk about now, really, what we're calling divine character. This is a God who begins to tell us exactly what he's like. And so we have a passage of scripture that we've chosen it's buried way, way down in, into the um, Old Testament. It's in the book of Exodus. For those of you wondering, it's actually the second book of the Bible. And uh, this is a moment where, G, uh, where God excuse me, declares exactly what he is like. So this is really an important moment. And here's why it's especially important. It's the first time he's ever done it. And so we're going to learn some things which makes this story even more interesting to us. And so because at Community of Hope, we place a high value in God's word, we always stand when we read the passage of scripture we're focusing on. Would you stand with me? And we are reading from Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 8. So this is how it reads. So the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, so chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Now be ready in the morning and then come upon the uh, the mountain of Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. And no one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may gaze in front of the mountain. Now, so Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones. And he went up uh, Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. Here we go, listen closely. The Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, 
maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So let me catch you up on where this is. So um, we know historically that God... Uh, through Moses leads the people from the uh, from uh, Egypt into uh, Canaan, sometimes referred to as the Promised Land, and he leads them across the Red Sea. He leads them out of just generations of slavery uh, and abuse. And uh, when they get on the other side of that, um, God is going to lay down some rules of engagement, if you will, about how the relationship should actually develop. You kind of see some of it here that we read in Exodus 34, but remember in Exodus 34, we're kind of dropping in on the middle of the story. So I'm kind of catching us all up real quickly on the story. And so uh, there's this moment where of great unfaithfulness on the people of Israel. Here's God who leads them uh, in a, with a cloud during the day and fire during the night and all this incredible acts of his uh, uh, presence. And then Moses goes up on the mountain uh, to get the Ten Commandments that we know as the Ten Commandments. And he's up there 40 days and 40 nights. He's up there a long time. It didn't, it didn't just happen. And while he's up there, the people get restless. You ever get restless wanting to hear from God? And they get restless, and so they go to the second in command. And they say to the uh, second in command, they say, you know, he's been up there a long time. We don't know if he's coming back. I got a, we got an idea we'd like to present to you. Why don't, why don't we make a golden calf so that we can worship a God? because we don't really know about Moses. And so this is what he does. This is what they do. The second in command makes the golden calf and they're worshiping. Moses comes down and sees all this. He smashes the the tablets and there's this awful moment. We were reading this week in our teaching team. One scholar said that was such a blatant act of unfaithfulness on the part of God's chosen people, it would be akin, and, and keep your seat when I say this, it would be akin to somebody committing adultery on their wedding night. It's just this incredible act of unfaithfulness. And here's what God wants to do. He wants to wipe everybody out and start over. And Moses, Moses, begins to arbitrate for the people. And he begins to have this conversation with God about maybe not wiping everybody out, maybe maybe not starting over, doing this. Now, here's what's fascinating that I want you to know that you could easily miss in the story. God has never yet told Moses what he's like. So Moses is arbitrating on behalf of the Israelites, actually not knowing what's going to happen. And this is the story 
we just read. And so what makes it incredibly powerful is to know that this is the, this is the drama, this is the dynamic that's taking place in the story. Moses is doing his best to kind of calm, as it were, God down, not knowing how God will actually react. And God is declaring to Moses for the very first time actually who he is. Pretty incredible for Moses to do that. And so this is an important part of the story. And, and if, you're, if you think about it, um, whenever we meet somebody for the first time, it's important and we hear things. Whenever um, we, we talk to somebody in the final moments of their life, you know it's an important thing. This is, this, there's a lot of drama embedded into this moment. And here's the thing I think about whenever I think about this story and what God reveals. The most important thing you will ever do in your faith is come to an understanding of who God is. It will matter the most in terms of your faith development. Um, I remember Anne Lamott wrote, wrote years ago, she wrote a comment about people's perceptions of God. And she said, you know, you can be most sure you've created a God in your own image when he hates all the same people you do. A.W. Tozer uh, about this very thing says this, you know, he says, we tend almost by a secret law of the soul. I love how he writes that. To move, look at this, to move toward our mental image of God. So what comes to mind when we think about God, he writes, is the most important thing about us. And like I've said, there are so many opinions about who God is. And you can find um, almost any opinion you're looking for. And what I love about this series and what I love about uh, what we're doing right now is we're letting God tell us about God. I don't know how it works in your home, but when Beth and I were very young in our marriage, we were, we were learning about one another. You know, you, you, you meet one another, you date, then you get engaged and then there's this moment kind of, you know, when you're first married is you're, you're really learning what it's like. And one, one afternoon we were having a conversation and we were talking about the things we like and the things we don't like about, about our own selves and about, you know, how we do life and how we do relationships. And I can remember telling Beth in the very early days of our marriage, she, I told her, I said, um, one of the things that I don't really like uh, 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 that people sometimes do to me that must have been done in the past that I remember is I said, I don't like to be presumed upon. And I said, if, if there's something that's unclear, I said, I would like you to trust me and go for more clarity. It was in those early days we were learning this in the absence of information, right? Put trust there until you learn. And so here's what I would tell you. This is such an application for us in this moment because this is what I think we should do with God. 
And here's God, we have all these opinions, we have all these experiences, but here's God telling us about himself for the very first time. And what I want you to notice are some of the things that he says about himself. And the first one he says is he's compassionate. Say the word with me, compassionate. Now you gotta focus because the rain is gonna lull us to sleep. And the rain is like Satan right now. So we're going to ignore Satan, and we're going to lean in on this, okay? The word, God says he is compassionate. Now, here's what's interesting about this word. Uh, If we look in the original Hebrew language, the word compassion in the English translation doesn't even do this word justice. We have to really, to get to the heart of this definition, we have to add beyond the word of compassion, which is pity and concern for the sufferings and mistakes or misfortunes of others. We have to add another word, which is this, compassionate and gracious. For us to even know the Hebrew language better, we have to know that God, in defining himself to Moses for the very first time, is compassionate and gracious. Everybody in the room, take a deep breath. You're worshiping a God who's compassionate and gracious. In Psalm 103, David writes about this and wants you to notice what he says as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, which is a way they would say respect him. For God knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are dust. Take a breath. God is compassionate and gracious. I was preaching this one time. I used a different translation and the translation says, for he remembers that we are but dust. And I had a guy come up to me in the lobby afterwards and he said, God thinks we're butt dust? I asked him to go to another church. God is compassionate and gracious. Look at this one. God is slow to anger. Take a breath. Some of you came in here this morning and you think, you know what? God is just eternally mad at me. Here's what I would tell you. No, he's not. He's slow to anger. One of the formational books for me that I read many, many years ago is a book by J.B. Phillips entitled, Your God is Too Small. And he writes in this book, he said, some of us, we... We view God as a benevolent old man, doddering old man, a a cosmic Santa Claus, or an eternal policeman pointing out every wrong. And the reality is, um, he's none of those things. And I find this really powerful because remember where we dropped into the story and where God says this for the very first time, this is in a moment of blinding unfaithfulness on behalf of God's chosen people. They have forgotten about every good thing God has ever done for them. They have blindly and wantonly and with all of this passion and lust gone the other way. 
And in a moment of what looked like the ending of creation, God declares himself as slow to anger. In fact, there's a comparative verse in the New Testament that talks about this. I think it's in 2 Peter 3.9. Look at what Peter writes. And boy, Peter, Peter's somebody who could have known about it, right? Denied the Lord three times. I'll never deny you, Lord. You know, boom, fell over, did his deal. And so Peter writes, he said, you know, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, look at this. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Take a breath. The God you're worshiping this morning is slow to anger. Thirdly, God says this about himself. He says, um, I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. I didn't know how to communicate this. I I thought about this all week long. Uh, Lord Jesus, what's a way that I can help our people understand what it means to abound, which means uh, to have extra amounts of love and faithfulness. And I thought of something that just happened Friday night. Let me tell you a little about my weekend. You know, we come off a vacation. We were looking at this weekend going, okay, we can do this. I had a really good friend of mine in Orlando that's been in my covenant group for many, many years. We were in a doctoral cohort together when we were studying biblical preaching and Christian leadership. Uh, Many, many years ago, we lived right next door to one another, and he and his wife, Pat, just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary yesterday. So that was in Orlando Friday. So we drove up through that storm, and we just needed to be there. Then yesterday, many of you all know Pastor George, they had a retirement party for my best friend who's retiring because he's older than me, and... And, and, and they had a party for him, so we went over there. And so we were over there all day, and then we didn't get home till late. But I want to show you a picture of Joe and Pat. These are my good friends. And um, what a great man of God. What a great woman of God. And we just wanted to be there. And they've, they've, um, they've got quite a story and quite a history, and they've struggled with both of them are cancer survivors, and there's just a lot of, lot of stuff going on at the very end. Joe, Joe is not really a person who likes to focus on himself. He gets up at the very end of this, uh, of this party that where everybody's throwing, this room is packed, and he gets up and he starts talking about his wife and just, just brought everybody to tears. I wanted to get up and punch him. <laughs> And, uh, and, and, and so when I was praying about this weekend and I thought abounding in love and faithfulness, I thought, I thought I'm going to show a picture of, of him and read my favorite definition, uh, an example of love. It's called an affirmation. And everybody asked after the first service, you're going to post it. I'll post it so you can have it. But I want you to hear this because it makes me think of them. And behind that, it makes me think of God's abounding in love and faithfulness for you and for me. The writing says this, I believe in love, not the hollow sentimentality Uh, or uh, full self-indulgence, not the love of untroubled waters or denied conflict. I believe in love that is realistic and romantic, muscular and meaningful, hearts and flowers mingled with tears. I believe in the love of children who with unspoken trust look up into the faces of adults in search of kindness and encouragement. 
I believe in the love, in the chaotic love of youth, which is full of passion, windswept and tumultuous, like a boiling sea, each impulse carried like crashing waves on the tender sand of hearts not yet steeled to resist or measure the power of each breaking wave. I believe in the love of friendship, fierce, loyal, defending, a love that crosses hearts and hopes to die, that is bold in courage, subtle in quiet intimacy. I believe in the love and the robust love of early marriage, giddy and unmanaged, ragged and uneven, the white water of romance that surprises with its capacity to wound and thrill, hurt and heal. I believe in the tired love of the childbearing years, that love which is carried in the pocket of a heart like a faded photograph, often forgotten, often presumed upon against the weight of dirty diapers and hectic routines. I believe in the companionship love of the middle years, Soil watered with weeping, softened with toil, that season of ripening fruit that comes because the cultivation of such love over time has proven its worth and a harvest of relationships vital and strengthening. I believe in the exclusive love of a lifetime of shared experience, tender, faithful, constant, near the end but still ascending, measured not in accomplishment but sacrifice, not in miles covered but in miles traveled together along the roads we gladly chose. But I believe that each of these loves is a failing picture of the faultless and pure love of God for each one of us Behind every pulse that quickens when eyes meet, behind every weary smile softened by sheer joy, behind every expression of human love that lifts our spirit with hope and possibilities for happiness, lingers the vast and unspoken, unspoiled love of God. And I affirm that when such love of a human fails or disappoints, or when I'm abandoned by lesser loves I hoped in, or lesser hearts I trusted, that I will fall not into the empty hands of callous fate, but rest in the arms of a caring God, who in loving me gave his life for me, that I should never taste death, but only life. And in that life, love eternal. Every now and again, if we're careful, human love has the capacity to point us toward the love of an eternal God. But it always falls short. But God never will. And that's the idea behind a God that is abounding in love and faithfulness. And then it says this, which is a kind of interesting verse. After the God who abounds in love and faithfulness, it shows this God who, um, we're going to go forward. Give me, give me the point there, Julie. 
Thank you. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is who God is. Now, we always get twisted up if we're careful about the second part of Exodus 34, verse 7, which says this weird thing. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes children and their children for the sin of their parents. And earlier when I talked to you about the Hebrew understanding and how it's hard sometimes to get a definition, this isn't the best English translation of what's going on here because here's what I would tell you is going on in this verse. This verse is at the opposite end of a God who is patient with you. And when God is long-suffering and patient with our sin and rebellion, innocent people get hurt. It's like a friend of mine, you've heard me say before, who struggles with addiction, and he says, Jesus lives in my heart, but grandpa lives in my bones. This is what the, the translation is pointing toward. There are consequences for sin, which makes repentance such an important thing. One author puts it this way. I got to show you this before we begin. And this is where we're leaning in. And he goes, uh, I think it's that next one, Julie. You're going to go forward. There he goes. God's goodness does not mean he will indefinitely tolerate evil. Those who don't repent of their evil must in the end perish with it. And then he goes on. He says this, for God to be truly and fondly good to his whole creation, he must remove from it whatever spoils and destroys its goodness Ideally by repentance, but if necessary, by judgment. God waits. This is why it's so important to know who he is, to know what he's like. This is why it's so important to to develop a relationship with God so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he can gently and with loving patience point on the parts of our character that must be transformed. This is why repentance is a good idea. Ultimately, God is just, and we must remember that. So I don't know what you've heard. I don't know what you've said. But God is telling us who he is. And we have nothing to fear and everything to benefit from welcoming him into our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this gentle space. We thank you that in your great love for humanity, you have chosen yourself to reveal us, yourself to us. You have chosen to identify who you are. And now you have chosen, oh God, in your kindness to tell us what you're like. So I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit in this room and in this place and for those listening online that you would give us, God, the wisdom and the encouragement and the passion to 
disassemble every false view of who you are so that we can know this real God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For we pray in his name and everybody said, amen. You know, I just wonder this morning, either online or if there's anybody here and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been on a treadmill of trying to appease and uh, coax into liking some distant, hostile, never-to-be-pleased entity that is a figment of your imagination. But God in his compassion and his grace is revealing himself to you right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish but will have everlasting life. If you are inviting that God into your heart for the very first time, I pray that you will come and speak with my friends who are down here. Let them offer just a gentle prayer of dedication around that. Don't go that way first. Come this way. God is here and he's reaching for you in love. God, we thank you this morning that you're so compassionate, so gracious, so slow to anger, so abounding in love and faithfulness, so giving your love to thousands of people and forgiving our wickedness and rebellion and sin that we can know you and walk with you. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in his great grace. We'll see you next weekend.